Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Listening Welcome to Jazz Shapers with me, Elliot Moss, bringing the shapers of the business world together with the musicians shaping jazz, soul and blues. My guest today is Hamish Grierson, co-founder and CEO of Thriver Health, a home blood test and health check service. While working at Travelex, initially on a placement as part of a program for aspiring entrepreneurs, Hamish met future co-founder Elliot Brooks. Due to a high cholesterol condition, Elliot was frequently asking Hamish for time off to get blood tests. Hamish realised the current healthcare system wasn't empowering people to take control of their health. Inspired by a new wave of fintech companies, Hamish Elliot and friend Tom Livesey launched Thriver in 2015, providing personalised blood tests and GP-reviewed results in 48 hours and equipping people with insights about their bodies to help them live healthier, longer lives. Thriver has supported over 2 million people across the country to manage their health through its direct-to-consumer service and through partnerships with government, NHS hospitals, insurers, GPs, private doctors and nutritionists. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much for having me on. 2015 seems a while ago. A lot has changed in the world. I mentioned briefly the government piece. I didn't mention COVID-19, but of course that is relevant. Before we get on to that and, and other things that happened during lockdown, talk to me about why this business was set up by you back then? The very short answer is that what we saw then, and I still see it now, is that most people, not just in the UK, but certainly in the UK at a minimum, do not know what's happening inside their bodies most of the time. And that has a range of very negative consequences, everything from identification of disease later than it should be, to people, you know, ultimately feeling disempowered to build that connection between, you know, my day-to-day lifestyle decisions, how are they actually flowing through to my biology? And you alluded to it in the introduction, you know, we were observing back in 2015 this fascinating development within fintech where organizations, TransferWise, Monzo, Revolut, businesses like that, they were building effectively consumer centric versions of traditional models. So they were placing the individual at the heart of the experience, treating them like an adult and bringing the customer with them on that journey. And I had become personally fascinated by health. I'm not clinically trained or from a a doctor-based background, but I had fallen in love personally with different forms of dieting and fasting and cold water exposure, the, the things that you can do day to day that just make you feel better and ultimately provide, provide you with better health. And I suppose it was the, the fascination with how that stuff was evolving as a personal area of interest, coupled with Elliot's experience with blood testing. And those two things as they came together, made it very clear to myself and Elliot to begin with, and then myself, Elliot and Tom, that actually, there is no reason that we should live in ignorance. And we went out to say, is there a technological solution or a methodology perhaps that would enable us to change the way we engage with our health? And you found the technology? We did. I mean, the thing that we 
ultimately discovered is that the laboratories who process samples over the you know 25 years plus running up to 2015, they'd gradually been evolving the machinery that actually runs the sample and analytics to require smaller and smaller sample volumes. Now, people often think you go to a, a GP, let's say, and they'll draw out you know, a couple of vials, big vials worth of blood. But practically, the amount of blood that will be used to run, let's say, a diabetes test has gotten down to something like half a droplet's worth of blood. So truthfully, unbeknownst until we started looking at it closely, the change in the technology was getting to the point where, because the sample volume was coming down, you could then say, well, perhaps we can ask people to collect those now smaller samples themselves at home. And accessibility is one of the cornerstones of how we think about our place in the world. You know, you have to be able to do this stuff more easily if you're going to be able to change the way people engage with their health. You mentioned you didn't have a clinical background or you're not a medic. Your your degree was in, it was at SOAS, wasn't it? It was. Yes. It was uh, a degree in international politics at yes. the School of Oriental and African There you Studies. go, SOAS, a fine place and a great degree to do too. Did it ever daunt you in those early days that you weren't medically trained or was it actually the best thing ever for setting up a business like this because you weren't going to get knee deep in the the medical side? I think ultimately it was a huge advantage and I say that because on the one hand, we had to bring in very, very early to the process, the clinical expertise that we knowingly didn't have and needed. And we brought in, you know, senior medical people from day dot. However, we were laymen in the very purest sense. And I think the reason that that was advantageous is that if we couldn't understand something, then we felt fairly sure that the average person that we wanted to be adding value to probably wouldn't either. So it's a pretty good filter for building things that real people outside of the, the medical profession would be able to get their heads around. And for you, you mentioned cold water swimming and you mentioned diets and stuff like that. Why were you personally, if not medically trained, why were you so interested in those things? Do you recall, was there a reason from, from a family point of view about why you were so concerned about health? Actually, it was... A different starting place. It wasn't concern. You were just uh, optimizing this fine figure of a, of a human <laughs> I see in front of me. Uh, I, I can assure you it wasn't that either. <laughs> I mean, it was back in the probably 12 months before I got married. Oh, come on. There's, there's a little bit of the backstory that sort of kicked in a bit later. Yeah. But actually, the, the, the jumping off point for me was in a curry house about 200 meters from where we're sitting. I sat down with a friend of mine called Jamie who was looking better than I'd ever seen him look. He was just, you know, f full of... He was the, glowing. He was glowing. Good way to describe it. <laughs> and um, he was sitting there having a pint and a curry, hence the curry house. And what became very clear is that he wasn't having any rice and he was drinking cider, not beer, which for me was fascinating because he sat there and for probably an hour talked me through the very basic reality of paleo dieting. And the... Jumping off point was so profound because I could understand the biology. I got the mechanical process that was unfolding internally. And for me, probably for, as is the case for millions, dieting is historically, it's where you don't eat mm. and you're hungry all the time. And yet here he was saying, I eat like a horse and I've lost a bunch of weight and I'm working out a little bit and actually I'm lifting houses in the gym. I just feel brilliant. So I... 24 hours later, 
started down the rabbit hole of getting really interested in what became a whole plethora of different things. And then as I started trying to myself get in shape for my wedding, I thought, maybe I'll give this a go. And I think the thing that was profound for me was the speed with which, A, you can do this stuff because it's basically free, and B, how quickly you see and feel the changes. And that just ignited this sense that we are so much more in control than perhaps we sometimes appreciate. But equally, we sometimes don't have the measures that would be helpful in augmenting our understanding of where we are. You've done a bunch of stuff before Thriver, and just listening to you talk then, it strikes me that there's a different vibe to this one, which is to say, to your point, inspired by your friend in the curry house, you can put people in control, you can be in control much more, your own health, physical health is absolutely critical, and why not change the model? Why not go down the route? And you mentioned Monzo, you mentioned TransferWise, Tavit's been on the program, weirdly, and so has Tom Bloomfield. That in control thing is still driving you. I'm assuming that is still why Thriver is pushing forward. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, I'm very lucky that we have developed since 2015 into a business that whilst we do continue to add value to people who come to us directly with the Thriver brand at Thriver.co, we also now power, and it's probably the bigger part of what we do, third-party organizations, um, some of which you touched on. And that for me is uh, critically important as part of how we achieve that vision of empowering people and providing them with that control. Because practically, health is a continuum. You know, people are not always well and they're not always, fingers crossed, sick. So you have to accept that to add that value, you have to create a solution that can map to the continuum. And what that means practically, to, to sort of make it a bit more real, is reactive healthcare, the sort of traditional primary and secondary care that we know and love. Why is it if you are in touch with a GP or a hospital or a specialist of some kind that you're suddenly robbed of the sort of product capabilities that we've created for people who are perhaps slightly more well? And actually, we, we don't want to rob them at all. We want to empower people, whether they are unwell trying to get well, or they are more well trying to stay well. For us, they are simply two ways to achieve the same ultimate goal. Common sense, but quite difficult to execute for millions of people, but you sound like you're doing it. Stay with me for much more from my business shaper. It's Hamish Grisson. He's the co-founder of Thriver. He'll be back in a couple of minutes. Right now, we're going to hear a taster from the Mishcon Innovation Series. They can be found on all the major podcast platforms. Natasha Knight invites business founders to share their industry insights and practical advice for those of you thinking about getting into an industry and starting your very own thing, just like Hamish. In this clip, focusing on the health and wellness industries, we hear from Ruby Rout, CEO and co-founder of Wooker, the UK's first eco-friendly period underwear brand. The Mishcon Innovation Series. Insights from founders for your future business. In association with Jazz Shapers, with Mishcon Derea. Start at the small scale, something that I learned, and I think one of the reasons that we became successful was when I launched, I only launched with one product. It is very easy to get overwhelmed with like so many choices and willing to give so many choices to people, but create a product that actually does the job and stick to it for quite a bit of longer period of time till you get the grasp of all idea of like how to run the business. 
because easily you will get like quite a lot of people come in and telling you like, oh, can you do this in like different style, different colors or with any other wellness product as well? I think so. And um, you will get like overwhelming feedback, but I guess stick to one thing and do best at one thing before you start diverting or trying a few other different things. I guess the other thing I would definitely would say is like, don't get put off by how much it costs to set up a business. There are so many things that you can hustle your way through in the early stages. Make a prototype, you know, talk to your friends and families. I think that is the best way to get started. I clearly remember this two-day MBA course that I did in in London called Lean Startup Machine. The idea was you go pitch your idea, and if people love the idea, they will form a group, and you create a business there and then. So that's how lean you should be. You should not think that okay, these are the things that are going to be obstacle in front of me, but like do a small steps at a time and hustle your way through the first stages. And that's exactly how I did it. The Mishcon Innovation Series, in association with Jazz Shapers, with Mishcon Dereya. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM, in partnership with Mishcon Dereya. It's business, but it's personal. You can enjoy all our former business shapers on the Jazz Shapers podcast. And indeed, you can hear this very program again if you pop Jazz Shapers into your podcast platform of choice. My guest today is Hamish Grierson, co-founder and CEO of the digital health company Thriver. So the three of you get together, you do your stuff. We're here now eight years later, I think, if my maths is right, give or take. In that first year or two, did you think you were going to make it? I think the one thing that entrepreneurs... Uh, have in common is um, just massive optimism. And is it real optimism though, Hamish, or is it sort of constructed and manufactured in a house near you? I don't think that it matters. Mm. I think that sometimes you have to manufacture it to get through a difficult day, but ultimately there has to be a core truth to the optimism. And that we're very lucky. We get to work on a on a problem space that by doing well, we're helping lots and lots of people. So there's a sort of motivation beyond just the financial that certainly helps get you out of bed in the morning. You know, and it was, you know, tough old early days as it is for all small nascent businesses. But I was personally incredibly lucky. I do not know how people start their first proper scale-up businesses on their own. I had Tom and Elliot and we were so mutually reliant on each other you know when an investor says no or you get a negative bit of feedback from a customer or just stuff that happens we always had each other to be able to prop one or two back up and somehow it always worked out that at least one of us was feeling strong Hmm. so the, the sort of median average was probably that much higher as a consequence I've read a lot about the fact that you want to create this trust between people doing the thing they do at home on their own when not in front of a GP or a medical professional and doing that in the same way that you self-serve in the financial world. And you talked about, you gave a couple of examples before and that, that changing of the dynamic and putting people in control. How have you done that? Because having worked in some of the biggest companies in the world with consumer brands where every brand manager I've ever met says, you've got to build trust. And I always say trust is an outcome. It's not the thing you say, trust us. How have you managed to do that in this environment where it's so, where the stakes are really high, where if it goes wrong or people perceive that you're charlatans or something, it ain't going to work? Yeah, I mean, it's a bedrock of how we've built the business, both in terms of the internal culture, 
uh, which is probably where it either starts or stops. You know, I think we probably saw what happened with Theranos, which was, I think, primarily a culturally derived outcome. It's an extraordinary story. I listened to the whole podcast series and I was like, I was absolutely blown away that someone had the the front to do that. Yeah, and it's culture, right? Yeah. And I think that's why embedding a cultural sort of North Star right from the get-go drove us to operate in the way that we do today. How did you get to that North Star out of interest? Honestly, I think it comes from the characterial realities of the founders. I don't think you can manufacture it. And we were setting out to do right by people. You know, we wanted to leave the world better than we'd found it. And that sounds like a, a trite thing to say, but there comes a point where, you know, you get your metal tested because you might have to move a bit more slowly and it might cost a bit more money, but it's the right thing to do because it makes people safer or you're making the data more secure or you're helping to navigate some sensitivities. So from day one, we've, you know, we've had the patient or customer first mentality, trust being an absolute bedrock of how you do that. And I think the obvious thing to say is, and we again touched on it a little bit, but bringing the requisite level of clinical input, you know, we've now got a, a phenomenal clinical team. And indeed, you know, from data security to the patient safety, clinical escalations, you know, all of the things that actually are mandatory to deliver a, a safe service and, and an effective service, we've brought the right people in to ensure that that's exactly what we've got. I think the final thing to say is we're very pro-NHS. I think people sometimes assume that all startups in some way, shape or form must be anti-NHS because they are disruptors. Quite the reverse. We want to be able to ultimately alleviate some of the current pressure on the NHS so it can get back to doing what it was designed to do which it does phenomenally well when it isn't having to deal with a whole bunch of extraneous pressure. So we've had NHS-trained GPs provide commentary on all of our results, as an example. And we work, as you said, with the NHS. We work with some hospitals and some GP practices as well. So yeah, it's, it's about being part of a system and helping it rather than standing outside and throwing stones. All of us, wherever we were in the world and whatever we were doing for a period of time under the extraordinary pandemic moment were in a very different place in our lives. And some businesses thrived, some businesses were under incredible pressure. Your business, a remote healthcare business, sounds like it obviously did well. I say well in inverted commas, but specifically you were working with the NHS, with government to deliver these antibody tests. How did it feel I don't. I, mean, it's, I want to phrase this carefully. How did it feel, sort of benefiting from mm. an absolutely awful situation, or did you not articulate it like that at the time? I, I think you know to wind the clock back to the early part of 2020. There was a total wartime mentality that everyone felt, and we were front of the queue. And there was no concept of it being a good thing for anyone at all, I think it's probably fair to say, for a fairly long period of time. And one of the first things that we did was to effectively create a sort of skeleton overview of what we'd built and leave it with whoever we could, because we had no political connection, to say, look, we've built this system for doing home testing. We've got no idea whether it's going to be useful. This was you know, kind of pre-mega test and trace uh, programs. But we've built this platform. If it would be useful, call me 
and I'll tell you how we've done it so you can do it. Who did you send that? Was it, it was an email you sent to someone or something? It was. I think it was by, by hook or by crook to someone in the Department of Health. Hmm. I have a vague recollection that it was an undersecretary that someone, one of our investors happened to know. Someone who knew someone who knew someone. Yeah, it was hmm. properly circuitous. And eventually the phone rang after we'd been invited to be sort of participant to this diagnostics group input to, to number 10. And everyone sort of said, look, we have been told that it's impossible to do what you've said that you can do, to have one relationship. And it was the Department of Health, the uh, DHSE, who were the ones ultimately picking the phone up to us. And they were, I think, having a, a really challenging time themselves trying to manage a whole slew of different suppliers on the PCR testing side. Entirely understandable. You know, that program gets a lot of negative press, but you know what they stood up over the, the, the short period of time that they did was phenomenal. Mm. But it was also really difficult because they were having to manage so many suppliers. So here's Thriver effectively saying, we have built, whilst we're a small company, we've built this big capability in terms of processing because we're the technology glue between the constituent parts of the remote diagnostic supply chain. So we can be a single supplier for antibody testing to the Department of Health. And you know, I think to be entirely honest, they probably had to come at that very skeptically because we were a pretty small player in the ecosystem. So we spent a long time going back and forth, ultimately showing them what we'd built. And after you know, a fairly intense period of you know, four or five months, it became clear that we had done the work with our suppliers and the amazing work had been done on the assay, so the actual test itself. And we were, we were ready to turn this program on. And it was, you know, for us as a business, it was really risky because we were so small, quite rightly, underperformance on, on the program was going to be penalized quite heavily. So we had to nail it. And I was really confident in the team and the technology. And they did. They absolutely nailed it. And it played a really important role in informing the Department of Health's understanding of the serology levels, i.e. the antibody levels, across a whole slew of different cohorts. So, you know, it was a phenomenally intense period of time. And we just happened to have built the thing that they really needed. And delivering it was intense. You know, we had to make sure it was absolutely right. But I can still see the emotion in your eyes because to me, I'm just listening and it, it it's choking me up a bit because the impact of what you did, coincidentally, because it wasn't meant to happen like this, is extraordinary. It really wasn't. Yeah, and I think anyone um, will certainly admit to the fact that, of course, no one saw this coming and there is no preparation that you can do for an event like that. And there's lots of you know potential um, versions of the story where we didn't have the thing that could add some value to and um, what the Department of Health were trying to attack and, and create solutions around. But we did. And we demonstrated that whilst we as a company could be small in number, I think we were sort of 50, 60 people at the time, using technology and working with really capable partners who themselves were fantastic, we could do something that became, I think it's fair to say, the gold standard internationally in terms of national level surveillance programs. You know, it was, the, it was something that I think the Department of Health should be incredibly proud to have constructed. But no, no one could have seen that coming, right? <laughs> and actually, I think the, the most fascinating consequence of it all is that what it left behind 
was a legacy that on the one hand of course you know we hope we're better prepared for the for the next one and generally speaking it seems to be it's when not if but also people's awareness of diagnostics and what you can do in the home that's moved forward probably 10 years in the space of two and i think that's ultimately a good thing for everybody yes it may be you know good for us uh, as a business but i think actually the much more important takeaway is societally we needed that to happen and there's going to be a, i think a, a very encouraging set of consequences as we start to see more of that come to fruition i think you should be incredibly proud i'm sure I'm not the first to say that to you final chat come out with my guest there it's hamish gris and we've got some oscar winning music from her as well that's in just a moment don't go anywhere Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Just for a few more minutes, Hamish Grisson is my business shaper. We've been talking about extraordinary things that happen in serendipitous ways when you, you, know, you were doing a bunch of stuff and suddenly the pandemic comes along and, and you were able to help. I think you were able to help because you'd been A, building a North Star, which was really clear and real and authentic, and B... As you said, you became the gold standard. It was the gold standard way of testing for antibodies because you've got quality in your organization, in the business. How have you managed to get to that level of quality and how are you going to manage to sustain it going forward? I think it harks back to culture. And you know, we have in every single person that we onboard, I take them through a presentation, one slide of which is very explicitly articulating that Thriver at every turn is scientifically backed and grounded in evidence. There was a period of time where perhaps you didn't need to tell people that, but in the sort of post-fact world that it's sometimes described as, we certainly feel that it's important to remind people and make it unmissably true that when you work for Thriver, whilst like any business, we've got to find the path to customers and, you know, stay light on our feet and change things to make sure we're constantly improving the value that we add that agility can't come at the pace of quality and that does sometimes mean you've got to slow down and take the hard path and that's just what you've got to do and you've got to figure out how to bring your investors and your stakeholders on that journey with you but generally speaking it's a very difficult one to argue with on the other side of quality and being focused and being determined and doing all the things you just described there's a big sacrifice that happens for you as a human as a person with kids and family and all that and I think I've read somewhere that you have said you've looked that in the in the mirror and gone that's that's going to be hard I'm not quite as present as I want to be how have you squared away that sacrifice with this notion and I, I'm just going to read this to you because I think it's one of your quotes it's talking about a society that should be surely all about the life in the years not just the years in the life for you and the life in your years, how are you managing this pursuit of quality in your work life and the pursuit of quality, I imagine, in your own personal life? Well, um, less expertly than I probably would ultimately like to. Um, and I think it's, um, it's the pursuit of continued improvement on that front that probably does keep me, keep me going. There's two things that stand out. Number one, I have the most incredible wife. And nothing that I have done or we have done, I believe would have been possible without her. You know, she is the absolute bedrock of our family. And I've been incredibly fortunate to be able to borrow from her strength to enable me to 
you know, try to change the world with, uh, with Thriver alongside Tom and Elliot. And the other is I try to practice what I preach and I am still very interested in health. And I now... He's a fine specimen, I may say. You look very healthy. <laughs> 104, but you look much younger. I'll pay you later. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I woke up this morning and had a cold shower and meditated on the train. And, you know, I tried to do the uh, intermittent fasting and, you know, stuff like that. So I'm very unpreachy about it because I will regularly fall off the wagon and maybe get onto a different wagon and try something else. Uh, I believe it's more of a sort of toolbox approach than, than, than anything else. You just need to find what's relevant at the time. So I try to stick with it and um, maintain a healthy, operative word, balance between you know doing what I need to to show up as a father and as a husband, also recognizing that building a startup's hard yards. It's been really good to meet you, Hamish, and thank you for your time. Just before I let you go off for another cold shower and another special bit of food you're going to eat, which is going to perfectly be in tune with your body and your mind. It might be a burger. It might be a burger. It probably will be a burger, which is good, because you're normal. Um, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? Uh, so I've chosen a track by African jazz pioneers. Not that my accent betrays it, but I am actually South African by origin. And uh, I was born and raised in Hout Bay, which is just around the corner from Cape Town. And um, I was very lucky to grow up in a house that had lots of music in it. And one of the bands that just seemingly was on repeat was the African Jazz Pioneers. So I really struggled to select a track from the album, but I've, uh, I've gone for the one that I have because uh, for some reason it just struck more of a chord than some of the others. And the reason in particular for me it was personal is I don't think I've listened to them for about 32 years. And for some reason I just got this lightning bolt memory and chucked it into Spotify thinking this is a really long shot. I doubt they're going to be on there. And of course they were. And it was, you know, music has a, a fairly profound a sort of memory trigger, doesn't it? And I was whipped back to being five years old in, in Hout Bay, probably faster and um, more powerfully than anything probably since I left. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it's got a real emotional connection for me. The African Jazz Pioneers with 1010 Special, the song choice of my business shaper today, Hamish Grierson. He talks about treating people like adults and putting you, the human, in control of your own health. He talked about optimism and how it is predicated on purpose and a really strong sense of purpose. And whether it's manufactured or not, it doesn't matter as long as you've got that North Star. And finally, really interestingly, he talked about being part of the system and specifically part of the NHS system. You don't have to go against the system to disrupt it. Really great stuff. That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Have a lovely weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business but it's personal. We hope you enjoy that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishcon.com forward slash jazzshapers.